Do you want to know how to give a young Jerry fresh in his faith anxiety? Tell him that there is one sin that if you commit it, Jesus will not forgive you and you will be condemned to hell regardless of the life that you lead. Tell him that there's some ambiguous thing that he can say or do, and if he does that, that is the one sin that Jesus could not forgive. Pass the herbal tea, please. Before we start to unpack the scripture, we have some other scriptures to get through. So we ended last week with Jesus talking about the reorientation of the interpretation of law, and well, that Jesus challenges us, just as Jesus challenged the Pharisees of that time. That if we are critically looking at scripture, it should critically look back at us, and we should be challenged by it. Part of reading scripture is challenging. It's breaking down those echo chambers that we tend to surround ourselves in. We tend to surround ourselves with these things that won't challenge us so we can in turn feel more secure. And what I challenged you last week was to knock on your walls a little bit and to let Jesus challenge you just a little bit more. So to see if you're ending up more like a Pharisee than a disciple, that you might be more of the old wineskin instead of the new. So as we continue in scripture this morning, we get to another story of mass healing and Jesus once again telling a demon to be quiet about his messianic identity. Jesus' ministry at this point has been kind of crescendoing by these mass healings where the crowds, the multitudes come to him and receive healing. And Jesus had quite the impactful ministry so far. And the gospel writer really wants us to know that, that Jesus is having such an impact on the people gathered and that his reputation is building, that there are people coming to see him. And as we've talked about over the last weeks, this is a sprint towards Jerusalem. And there are moments like this that give credibility to what happens in Jerusalem. The people are coming to Jesus. He is an important person. The people are bringing, beginning to believe in who Jesus says he is. And in that, they're beginning to follow. This is capitalized by the next part, where they list through the disciples that Jesus has called up into this point. And there's a good importance of naming the disciples, partly for the notoriety that follows these individuals after the time that Christ was crucified. You have to remember that people are reading and hearing this mostly 30, 40 years after the death of Christ. So, for the lack of a better way of describing, this is a bit of name dropping that is happening right here to give the gospel message validity. The names of these apostles have gone on to establish churches, have been martyred for their faith, and have had their own stories told and told and told and passed down. And that's why it's important that they're named. Also, what I think is important is that Jesus also grants them the same power that he has. That is, healing and casting out demons. This is another place where the divine and the humanity clash and pushes into our world, where humans are given power over this spiritual realm. Just as Christ preached and carried out the gospel, just as Christ is human, human now are being humans are now being called to preach as Christ preached, called out to carry out the gospel as Christ carries out the gospel. And now that we talked a little bit earlier in this series about the importance of calling, and there's another statement that was used at the time of Christ to describe the relationship between the disciple and their rabbi. The saying was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea of this is saying that you followed your rabbi so closely that, that you would literally be covered by the dust they kicked up at their feet. When you were a disciple of a rabbi, your whole goal was to so closely imitate your rabbi 
that you would become like them, that you would take on their teachings and their preachings, that you would follow them so closely that you would be covered in their dust. When Jesus calls them to preach and teach and to have authority, what Jesus is saying is, follow me closely, so closely that you will be able to do the things that I have done. Follow me closely, and now you will be able to see the kingdom of God that I see, the kingdom of God that is here, that you are now invited to be a part of. Also, how cool is it to be named the Sons of Thunder? I would definitely make sure that if that was the nickname that Jesus had given me, I would make sure that it made it into all the writings. What's your name? Oh, John. Or as Jesus used to call me, a Son of Thunder. That is just so legit sounding. Also, so Jesus and the Sons of Thunder. See how cool that sounds. Jesus and the Sons of Thunder ride into town and go to a house to cast out a demon. Now, Jesus has been doing this for a while now, and so Jerusalem, as it seems, has come to him. There are these experts of law from Jerusalem that have come down to question him and what Jesus is doing and start to just kind of chuck insults at Jesus. They equate Jesus to Beelzebub, saying that he is a high-level demon throwing out these lower-level demons. Yes, in the reality of the time, they believe that there's this hierarchy of demons, and the teachers of law or experts in law are equating Jesus' authority as coming from a hierarchy of demons than an actual authority from God. This is a high point of scripture, where Jesus very famously says that Satan cannot throw out Satan, nor a house divided itself cannot stand. Jesus takes a stand against the teacher saying that their logic is flawed. Because why would Satan want to throw out Satan? Why would evil want there to be less evil? As you can see, the logic of this quickly fails. And for a lack of a better way of saying it, it is fake news. It does not make sense. And the teachers of law from Jerusalem are only saying this because it would either inflame or spread fear to those who heard it. Now, this really isn't news to us. We know what propaganda is, and the propaganda machine is out in full force against Jesus, trying to say that Jesus' good actions are actually evil. And we hear this all the time, especially in today's political climate where everybody's spinning everything. So it feels like no one can do good anymore in the eyes of opposing parties. It feels like that even the good actions are skewed to be used as a way of fear-mongering, a way to convince people that the good that someone would want to do is actually bad or evil. And how Jesus responds is how I think we should try to respond ourselves. We, Jesus kind of removes himself from the emotions of the situation takes a look at what is actually happening. We need to pay attention and not just trust the experts of law and what they say. Whereas my father-in-law, who's an accountant, would always tell me, you can trust, but verify. If you want to trust someone, that what they're telling you, you have the full ability to do that. But you should also take the time to verify it as well. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is an important point that I want to belabor a little bit too. That's kind of an interesting thing for us to think through. I believe what Jesus is saying is also that we cannot use evil to root out evil because that will only create more evil. This is a point that I think is, is very obvious, but sometimes I find in our own culture, in our own communities, and yes, even our own churches and myself, 
fail at. We think that some way violence can root out violence, that evil can root out evil. And I'm what Jesus is really trying to say when Satan cannot cast out Satan is that violence will never root out violence. Evil will never root out evil, no matter how much we try to redeem evil. Thinking that we can commit a lesser evil, and that is the answer. What Jesus is making it apparent here is that Satan cannot cast out Satan. We cannot use the tools of the devil in order to cast out the devil. I'm going to say that again because it is an important thing for us to remember. We cannot use the tools of the devil to cast out the devil. Because even if you win, in reality, you have not. Now, much to Candace's chagrin and how much she hates me talking about this, whenever I have an example, uh, a way to bring this up, I always do. And I would be remiss if I did not mention Doctor Who right now. Now, if you know me well enough to be actually listening to this, you know that I'm a huge nerd and I'm even a bigger nerd for loving Doctor Who. Whenever I come across this notion of scripture that evil cannot root out evil, whenever the wheel of evil is mentioned or this cycle of violence, I cannot not not mention the Zygon invasion. Okay, now this is gonna sound nerdy, but it's not as nerdy as it sounds. Okay, it probably is as nerdy as it sounds, but it's also a very good example and I need to share it. So the premise of this episode is that there's an alien race that has sought refuge on Earth called the Zygons. And they have this ability completely to look like humans so they can blend in with humanity and you would not even know. Now, some of the Zygons who came to this Earth as refugees are upset and now want to take over the Earth and oppress the humans. And the doctor deciding to what to do in this situation presents both leaders with two boxes one to the leader of the uprising and one to a representative of earth one of the boxes when they press the button will kill all the zygons and the earth the other one will kill all the humans no one gets to know which box does what which means when they are met with their own hate their own decision, their own evil? Are you willing to hate something so much that it's worth losing the entirety of your own kind? While they are, are contemplating this action, the doctor makes this great speech about how violence will only become a wheel. That as one nation kills the parents of another nation, their children grow up to seek revenge. The, and the only way to break the wheel of violence is to forgive. The only way to stop violence is to break away from using violence as a way of order. And I do believe that God sometimes shouts at us through, through popular culture. And I can hear God shouting now. And when the doctor was making that speech, all I could hear was the words of Christ. Satan cannot cast out Satan. The words of the prophet Amos, justice shall flow like a river. Words of Christ, they will beat our swords into plowshares and neither will they learn war anymore. Now, getting back into the scripture, we, we reach the, the point of my anxiety that I mentioned earlier, the unforgivable sin. I'm going to share my interpretation of the scripture. And I should note that there's a lot of interpretations about this scripture and mine is only one of them. We have Jesus giving kind of some parameters saying that all sins will be given here on earth except for those who witness the Holy Spirit and deny it. That will not be forgiven. 
This is often referred to as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, the most common idea behind this scripture is that it refers to the people at the time of Christ who physically witnessed what Christ was doing in front of them and still would deny what was happening or taking what is happening and uh, attach it to something else as saying what was Christ was doing was good was actually evil. You would need to be physically present, see Christ physically in front of you, physically performing these miracles, miracles. And if you were to deny that or manipulate those things, then you could not be forgiven for this. And this is why Jesus is calling out that legal expert at the end of scripture. They're wanting to claim the actions of God are evil in order to trick people and detract them away from Christ. For Christ, this is the unforgivable sin. When you take the actions of God through the Holy Spirit and claim that it is evil and try to use that action to pull the people away from God. It resonates with that better have a millstone around your neck than to lead those away from God. It is that echoing of this idea. Once again, they are physically witness to what Christ is doing in front of them using the Holy Spirit and they are lying about it to manipulate people away from Christ. And Christ says this is unforgivable. And so if we were to flip that today, we can't see Christ physically. So we cannot deny the works of the Holy Spirit in this way. This is why some people would argue that the scripture is not relevant today. And I kind of agree with that as well. I do believe that what Christ is saying is unforgivable is directed at a specific group of people, those experts of law who had gathered there, who are trying to manipulate the people against what Christ is doing. But yet, why I said kind of, as I believe that there is also a question here that is central to our faith. If we deny Christ here on earth for the entirety of our lives, have we done an unforgivable sin? If we deny Christ and all that Christ has done here on earth for the whole of our lives, are we unforgivable? This question I feel like I know the answer to. The only way to heaven is through the way, the truth, and the light. That is Jesus Christ. The only way through Christ and Christ alone, that only through Christ and Christ alone can we find eternal life. I say that I feel like I know this answer, but I also kind of hold out hope that I don't know exactly what Christ means by this statement. And God being the judge through Christ, Christ being that judge will judge justly even those who deny him. There's this nuances in where my wrestling with this question kind of I find myself resting in it today. The warning that there is an unforgivable sin for those experts of law that were rather, that, that, that warning for the unforgivable sin was for the experts of law that were there at that time. But also for us today, it still serves as a warning that if we live a life apart from Christ, we have to rest in the judgment of God to be just. And then there's another story that follows this uh, telling really closely that sheds an interesting light on this idea. Jesus' family comes to the door and people are telling Jesus that his family is outside. And Jesus has this kind of a weird response where he opens up his family to everyone. And this statement is very intimate. It's very open and inclusive. And it stands kind of a bit stark next to the part of the scripture before where he says, there's a group of people who will be completely excluded from me. And here he's inclusive. Jesus in the span of these two paragraphs has one of the most exclusive statements in the gospel, right next to one of the most inclusive statements of the gospel. And I think this is actually the crux of the gospel. 
where it can be both inclusive and exclusive. That in some way, Christ is calling all in, and at the same time, there will still be those who deny him and those that Christ will judge. Christ has an invitation of intimacy for everyone to follow him, to be so close to him that the dust of Christ that would cover you, to be so close to him that you are considered to be part of the family, to have Christ's teachings and preachings and authority and be part of the family of Christ. That invitation is extended to everyone. And there's also a tension here, though, for those who live their lives that deny Christ, those who we might call unforgivable, those who might use evil to root out evil, those who might try to prevent the goodness of God by claiming that that it is evil. There's a place there for Christ to judge them. And I want to stress that it is Christ alone who deserves to judge them. And I think this tension is central uh, for us to who Christ is and who we need to become as a church. We are at the same time both exclusive and inclusive. But one thing I do want to note is that it is Christ alone who gets to make about the choice of who's in and who's not. Our job, our job is to be a part of the family. Our job is to invite other ends. I think our job is to be the invitation. Just as Christ invited us to preach and teach and have authority here on earth, an invitation that was extended to us to being a part of his family We are now called to extend that invitation to others. As I have often said from the pulpit, I do not know who is forgiven and unforgiven. I don't get to know who is in and who is out. And ultimately, it is not my job to be the judge. My job, my job is to get so many people through the door. My job is to be covered in the dust of the rabbi so much that I imitate Christ. And church, that is our job. Our job is to take on a mantle, to take up the cross, and go and do likewise. Our job is not to be a judge, but to be an invitation. And I hope that is a job that you are ready for, because there are things out there, church. There are things out there that are scary and anxious. There are people out there who are worried that they are too far gone. There are people out there who are stressed in a place of saying that God would never love me. God would never care for me. And our job is to be inclusive as Christ was inclusive in that moment saying, Who is my brother, my sister, my mother? It is everyone. And as we go out and do, may the dust that covered Christ also cover you. And may that dust that covers me be an invitation to invite others in. And when we get stressed about the things that we do not understand, sit down and have some herbal tea. Amen.